The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. I'm excited about this uh, new series that we're starting today. I've been thinking about it for a while several months and praying about it. I actually had a different series in mind that I was going to do. And then this just kind of came on to me. And so I've changed course a little bit. And so we're going to take some time to take a look at the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are First and Second Timothy and Titus. Okay, all three of those letters were written by the Apostle Paul for the church. And so we're going to start looking into those, and we'll see how far we go or how long it goes. Nobody knows, but we're going to start with that. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Timothy. Start in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Today we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, focusing on on verse 2, and do just kind of an overview of, uh, of this book And uh, then we'll make some small applications to our own lives at the end. First, looking at what the book says and then making applications. So let's begin with a short prayer. Father, I want to thank you for this week of prayer, the prayer summit, and how you were so faithful to us to meet us every single night to minister to your church. You love your church. We are your children, and you love everyone here that is in this room. You love us, and you know everything about us, and you still love us. You see all of our faults and failures, and you still delight in us. Lord, you are beyond amazing. Your grace and mercy upholds us from day to day. And I love your word, Lord, and I have so enjoyed 1 Timothy. I pray that you would help me to share it in a way that is true to the scriptures and for all of our benefit, that we would not stay the way we are, but we would be changed by truth. So I pray also for open hearts and open ears to receive from you through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Verse 1 and verse 2 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now what you will see as we get into this letter is that it deals with errors in the church. Error has crept into the church. We're only about 30 years past the resurrection of Christ. And already, heresy and error has come into the church. It tells us, shows us the importance of having sound theology, having correct theology. It shows us God's design for the church how the church should function, how leadership should function, what are the different roles between men and women in the church and leaders in the church. 
uh, it talks about church discipline and how to deal with sinners in the church who will not repent and also leaders who sin and will not repent. And so basically normal church, right? I mean, this is what every church deals with. And, you know, sometimes we're so shocked and surprised when there's a failure in the church, always failing to realize that this church is full of people, imperfect, sinful people. And so don't be shocked when somebody has a problem or sins or has a bad attitude or is unkind or what have you because you are surrounded by people. Now, Paul tells us the purpose of his letter to Timothy in chapter 3, actually. So if you zip forward to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 explain his purpose. He says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the faith. Isn't that interesting that we need a letter from Paul to tell us how to obey in the church, how to function in the church, that uh, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in the church? Well, it's because we may not know. This is from God's perspective, how he wants his house to be run, how he wants his children to behave. So the whole thing is about the church and how the church should function, how the leaders of the church should function, what they're like, what they should they be accountable to, and how the people should function. So this is an absolutely essential epistle for all of us, that we would study it, and know it and live by it. If you notice verse 2, he says it's written to Timothy. Timothy, my, he says, my true child in the faith. Now, this is a typical greeting of his day. The apostles didn't invent a new greeting. They used the ones that they were familiar with in their time, just as similar as you would say, dear so-and-so in an email that you're sending. That's what you see here. It's very standard Greco-Roman greeting. So it begins with the identification of the author and his uh, and who he is, and it ends with the recipient and his identification. So in this case, we have Paul. He is the author, and he is identified as an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God and our Savior in Jesus Christ. The recipient is Timothy, and he is identified as a true child in the faith. Then it follows the typical greeting that you would see in any kind of letter between two people, grace, mercy, and peace. And a lot of Paul's epistles and letters, he says grace and peace. Here he adds in the word mercy, I think, because of the difficult situation that Timothy was up against Timothy was the pastor at the church in Ephesus. This is the church at Ephesus, which interestingly we know a lot about because we see Ephesus mentioned again in the book of Revelation as one of the seven churches. And so he says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus 
our Lord. Now, it's important when you're studying a portion of Scripture to first identify who this is written to, what it is. What are we exactly reading here? Because the Bible, as you know, is a collection of all different kinds of writings. And so we need to identify, first of all, what this is. So just on face value, this is a letter from one man to another. It's from a Christian brother to another Christian brother, an older Christian in Paul to a younger Christian in Timothy. Now, if you don't start with that, your interpretation can get off, get into all kinds of error. This letter is about what was going on in the church at Ephesus. What led up to this letter being written? Why was it written? What was going on in the church that caused Paul to have to write this letter? What was he trying to say to Timothy? What was his purpose? Why did he say this? All of that we will draw out of it today if we can, as much as we can, and then we will take the 21st century applicable uh, to our lives. So let's start with Paul. Paul was a, Paul, the name Paul is a very common name, like the name John would be. A common name for the Cilicians. Paul was uh, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Cilicia is modern Turkey. His name means little or small in stature. So he was the runt of the family. We know that Paul was not particularly good looking. He was a man not of striking appearance. And we know that from 2 Corinthians 10 because the Corinthians looked down on Paul because he didn't have this great Greek and Greek Athenian physique, okay? He was short chubby, sickly, and unimpressive to the Corinthians. In fact, the word they use in referring to Paul is taipanos, which means weak, unimpressive, or a sickly stature. And so that is what they thought of Paul. That's what they said he looked like. And you know, when I read that, it gives me hope. <laughs> God can use any kind, right? You don't have to be uh, Brad Pitt to serve the Lord. I don't think he is anyway, but God uses all types, doesn't he? Thank God for that. Paul is considered to be one of the greatest Christians that has ever lived. Still, phenomenal Christian. His name was of great significance in his day as much as it is in our day. In fact, probably more so in his day because you see in the book of Acts, I believe it's 19, the high priest, he has these sons and his sons are, are running around the country uh, casting out demons out of people. And so they ran across this one guy who was possessed by a demon and so they said, you know, uh, the name of Jesus, you know, leave this man, and the demon spoke to them and said, yeah, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but I don't know you. And then he beat them up and scattered them around. So Paul's name was of 
significance in his day. People knew that name. They knew who he was. It wasn't uncommon for people in his day to have two names because we see that he's, he's initially called Saul. And then after the 13th chapter of Acts, his name from then on is referred to as Paul, always Paul. Prior to that, he was Saul. So he was a Jewish man because he had a Jewish father. He was born in a Roman province, so he was a Roman citizen. And so perfectly suited to be the apostle to the Gentiles because he understood his Jewish roots, but he also understood the Roman side of things, the Gentile side. And so after, as I said, after he began his missionary journeys, Acts 13, he is always referred to as Paul. Paul's background is easy to understand. You can study it yourself. It's in Philippians chapter 3. He says of himself, he says, I am a circumcised Jew. So he is a committed Jew. He is following it as closely as possible. Born of the stock of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, essentially saying that he was a zealot and zealous for the Hebrew faith, for Judaism. He was a Pharisee. And he said a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning that he was perfect as it pertains to the outward expression of the law. He followed every law perfectly as a Pharisee. He was so zealous for his faith that he saw Christianity as a major threat to Judaism. And so he, like the other Pharisees, hated Jesus, persecuted the church. He was a murderer of Christians. When Jesus called the Pharisees a bunch of vipers, a tomb full of dead men, bones, whitewashed liars, hypocrites, he was referring to Paul. And then in Acts chapter 7, we see the first martyr of the church is Stephen. And Stephen is a godly man, full of the Holy Spirit. And Paul incites this riot to stone him to death. And so it's interesting that Luke says that Paul was holding people's coats. So apparently it's hard to throw rocks at people while you're wearing your coat. So you take them off to commit murder. And so it says that Paul was holding people's coats and approving of the murder of Stephen. Paul was eventually converted to Christianity. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was blinded by this bright light, knocked to the ground, could not see, but heard Jesus speak to him. Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him, and he was converted to Christianity by the Lord Jesus himself. He eventually, uh, after some training and some time in the wilderness, he was brought by Barnabas to Antioch and was very quickly offered a position as one of the pastors, there are five, at Antioch, the first place where Christians were called Christians, was at Antioch, and so Paul was one of the five. In Galatians chapter 1, 
Paul affirms that he did not receive his revelations from men, but directly from Jesus. He was converted by Jesus. He received his revelation from Jesus. He was taught by Jesus. He was confronted by Jesus, saved by Jesus, and called to be an apostle by Jesus. And so when we use the word apostle, we have to understand there are two different forms of apostle, with the capital A and with the lowercase a. You'll see it all throughout the New Testament, both forms of the word apostle. But when you're referring to the uh, 11 apostles plus Mattathias, remember Judas hung himself, so then they, by the Holy Spirit, they voted in Mattathias, and that was the 12 apostles, capital A, because they had been taught directly by Jesus. All that they received, they got directly from Jesus. So they are Apostle, capital A. Well, the Apostle Paul also is considered an Apostle, capital A, because he also received his directly from Jesus. Now, all the other leaders and apostles are called apostles of the church, with a little a. And if you look at 2 Corinthians 8.23, for example, you see a list of apostles there, all of them lowercase a, because they did not receive it from Jesus directly. They received it through the church. So you have two kinds of apostles. We have 13 that come directly from Jesus, and all the rest are from the church. So Paul is saying here in verse 1 that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, what do you notice about that? Because that's strange. That doesn't fit. Because everywhere else in the New Testament, you see an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Paul has reversed that. It says Christ Jesus. Why? Why has this been switched? Well, all of the disciples, they knew Jesus, the man. And they walked with him and they learned from him. They were with him. They knew him before, as Jesus, the man, before they knew him as Jesus, the Christ. That was revealed to them later. Well, that was not the case with Paul. Paul's first interaction with Jesus was as the risen Christ. So he always referred to Jesus as Christ Jesus. It wasn't until later that Paul understood Jesus, the man in his life. So that's why he reverses it, and he never uses any other, other, other way. It's always Christ first. Now, why does Paul use such a heavy use of authority? Because he says, verse 2, he says, Timothy, a true child in the faith. In fact, Timothy was so like Paul that Paul said to the Corinthian church, I want to send to you Timothy because there is no one else who is more like me than Timothy. I wish I could go be with you. I can't. So the next best thing is to send Timothy because Timothy is just like me. He's a true son in the faith. So if Timothy is in right relationship, Paul doing all this right, why is he laying on all this heavy authority and apostleship? Well, it's because we know, because of what's going on, what Timothy has to face. He's got a 
difficult situation. Many Pharisees and Sadducees became uh, converted to Christianity, Christians. They found themselves in the church at Ephesus there. The church was growing rapidly. And they brought with them some of their Judaism, which they wanted to incorporate into Christianity, which Paul was adamant against that that should not be done, that this is a new thing. This is not simply regurgitating the Old Testament. This is a new thing called Christianity. And so Timothy would have to confront these people. Now, think about it. No one is at our church because you're paid to be here. Are you? Is anybody getting paid to be here? Nobody is. Wouldn't it be great if you were? Uh, None of our staff are paid to be here on Sunday. All of us who do receive money from the church, we work Monday through Friday. And our day off is on Saturday. And on Sunday, we serve the Lord just like you do. We're using our gifts. So don't criticize us. (laughs) Or we might do it to you. But anyway... So, what leverage do we have over you? I mean, you are here on your own volition. You can leave at any time. You're not under any obligation. So, things are wonderful as long as I am patting you on the back and saying, oh, what a good Christian you are. You're just wonderful. Oh, I just love you. What happens when I need to confront you in sin or correct behavior, which, by the way, as we will see, is one of my responsibilities mandated by God. So Timothy needed a heavy dose of authority so he could go and confront these people. Now, I'll tell you, in, in, in almost a decade that I have been at Canyon Ridge, every single time except for twice that I have confronted somebody or a staff member on their behavior, they have hated me for it and left the church. So much so that now I have this PTSD thing going on, (laughs) literally, that if anybody says to me, you know, hey, I need to meet with you, I immediately have this panic of, oh, great. I'm going to have to confront them, and then they're going to leave the church. I'm serious. That's a a real fear. Because guess what? I don't like being hated. Neither do you. And so every single time, except for twice, on those two occasions, I think those people actually thanked me, repented, and are still with us. All the rest cursed me and head out the door. And so... There's a massive risk that we take as leaders in leading this bunch. Because what normally people say to us is, who are you? You don't tell me what to do. How dare you tell me what to do? That's the attitude that we get. Well, that's obviously what Timothy was going to face. Paul knew that, knew he needed some authority. And so here is the truth about this. When you 
question my authority and you come against me as the lead pastor here at this church, you have to understand, first of all, I am here because I have been appointed by the Lord. Not by the denomination, not even by you. Okay? God has put me here and I operate on that authority. So when you come against me and you curse me or you attack me or whatever, you have to know that you better be on solid, firm footing or else you will be doing that against the Lord. Now, I don't mean to come heavy-handed on anybody, and I'm not mad at anybody. There's no one I can think of that, that I want to confront or throw out of the church. I love you. And when the pastor loves the congregation, the congregation loves the pastor, it all goes well. But this is what was going on with Timothy. And so Paul lays out this heavy authority, that he got it from Christ himself. It's almost like he's saying that that when I'm there speaking to you, I have the authority of Christ, but I also, in my letters, my letters are also authoritative because they come from Christ as well. His letters were inspired. In other words, through the Holy Spirit, the, the Jesus inspired Paul to write these things. And I think that, um, as I said, that he will be facing tremendous adversity. So he needs this letter, which he would probably take and read to the people of his day. Um, let's see here. getting ahead of myself. When confronting uh, behavior that needs to be confronted, the danger for me is that I would say nothing because, one, I don't want to be offended. You know, I don't want you to be hating me. Or two, I want you to like me. So that's my danger. But if I go that route, the danger is even worse for me because then I take the risk of grieving the Holy Spirit. So when it comes to all of this negative stuff, I am not afraid to confront you because I am far more afraid of the Lord. Okay? So I will obey. And that's what Paul was trying to get Timothy to understand. Uh, Here's a further aspect of Paul's authority because he says here, I'm an apostle, that he says, by the command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. So essentially, Paul is saying here that he's, he's making a connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Now, Paul was a brilliant lawyer regarding the Old Testament. He knew it through and through, back and forth. And so you see it coming out, all of his writings, every letter of Paul's has this uh, tie back to the Old Testament. And this is one of them. It comes through all the book of Psalms. Throughout the Psalms, you see this over and over and over. God, our Savior. Look it up sometime. Test me, you'll see it over and over and over. God, our Savior. So Jesus is our Christ. He is the Lord, and he is equal to God. He is the same. He's equal with God. 
some people make the mistake of believing that the God of the Old Testament is this mean, vindictive, angry God that was appeased by the loving Jesus. And so in the New Testament, Jesus appeased this old, mean old man, and now we have this loving, wonderful Jesus. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Anyone who believes that does not understand the Old Testament. All right? They are one and the same. The Father and Jesus are the same. So when you do that, you completely misunderstand Jesus, and you completely misunderstand God the Father. And so he's getting, wanting to get this thing straight. Timothy had a church full of Jews and Gentiles who would have argued over that issue back and forth. The Gentiles be saying, oh, we're of Jesus here. And the Jews saying, oh, we're of God the Father. And it would be this back and forth. So Paul was setting that straight. So let's look at Timothy. Timothy means one who honors God. He had a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother, both uh, faithful followers of Christ, who taught Timothy in the ways of Christianity. But he had a Greek father. His father was not in the picture, not in his life. He was raised by his mother and his grandmother. And I think that made him perfect for the church at Ephesus because he had both aspects just like Paul did. He was familiar with the Greeks. He was also a Jew. Timothy was Paul's true child in the faith. Isn't that a beautiful designation? True child in the faith. He was Paul's disciple. Paul had mentored him, discipled him. And it's really a cool study one time that maybe you could do, you would really enjoy, is to go through the New Testament and look at all the people that are connected to Paul as his uh, people discipled by him. It's enormous. Tons and tons and tons of people who were discipled by Paul and their names included in the, Old, in the New Testament. So Paul is discipling Timothy. And in this, this letter, we see this beautiful picture of an older godly man mentoring and training a younger godly man. And that's how the church is supposed to work. The older training the younger. One training another. Men training men, women training men, women. This is how the church is supposed to function. The old men in our church, I don't know what that is. I just turned 50, so maybe I'm in the group now too. But I, I don't know. I feel, I feel like I'm 25. <laughs> so Jim Maton, is, uh, he, he qualifies in that group, uh, the older men in the church. <laughs> and I think that the rest of the men should learn from him. Follow his example, because this is what he does. Every time he is here on a Sunday, he is on the hunt to find some young guy somewhere who's just kind of flailing or just you know, running around or not doing what he's supposed to be doing and connect with that guy 
and then bring him close under his wing and begin to train him and disciple him. He's got four, always, at any time, four or five different men that he is discipling. And that's what all of the men should be doing. We don't have enough of this in our church. We don't have enough older women discipling younger women. It's not happening. It's not happening. Maybe it's happening in small scale. But we need so much more of that, a lot more of that. This is how it's supposed to work. One training the other. When you get to the, the final step in our strategy, see, our strategy begins with explore faith, discover community, reach out to others, right? You're familiar with this. And so... Once you've explored faith long enough and then you graduate into a community group and you've been in a community group for a while, now you need to move over into mentorship. That's the final step. It's just simply walking with somebody. That's all it is. Just walking with somebody through life, giving them encouragement, support, teach them what you know. You don't have to have the whole Bible memorized, okay? You just teach them what you know. So maybe you're done exploring faith. You've, you've, you've finished that phase. You're moved on to a community group. Now it's time for mentorship. And you notice the accountability flows with this as well. The first stage of exploring faith, there's virtually no accountability in that at all, right? I mean, you can show up, you can leave, you can do whatever you want. Nobody will ever know. But when you get into a community group and there's only 10 to 15 people there, people start to know. They get to meet you and find out some of your baggage. There's another level of accountability there, okay? Well, then the next level, there's even more accountability because you hear me on this. When you get into a mentor relationship where you're mentoring another person, you have to have your stuff together, okay? Because you can't have the blind leading the blind. We don't want that, okay? So it forces you to grow yourself. It's a good thing. One person walking with another, that's what we're seeing here with Paul and Timothy. Let me ask you some questions, and then I'll wrap it up with that. These are questions you can ask yourself to know whether or not you should be in a mentor relationship. Okay? Number one. Are you stuck in a rut spiritually? Are you in a rut? You're not growing. Your faith has become stagnant. Maybe you've got some kind of... Uh, uh, thing that you're struggling with, um, you, you can't get past it, same old, same old, nothing keeps you on your toes like a mentorship relationship. So it's wonderful for getting people out of a rut. Number two, are you struggling with the same sin over and over and over and over and over, and you're, you've, done, you've done that sin so many times, you don't even want to ask for forgiveness anymore because you're sick of it. You're absolutely sick of it. You're tired of going to God for the same thing over and over and over, and you naturally assume that God is sick of it. Okay? You're both sick of it. That is the need for a mentorship relationship. 
Somebody who can help you get beyond that. If you could do it yourself, guess what? You would have done it by now. So stop being in denial. Get into a mentorship relationship. Get over that thing. Number three, are you having difficulty being consistent with your 20-minute mornings? Some people can pick up the 20-minute mornings and boom, they just take off with it. Others struggle. If you struggle, that's because you need some accountability. You need a mentorship relationship where somebody can hold you accountable. You can hold each other accountable for consistently in the word and prayer every single day. And number four, has your faith become easy or boring? Faith easy or boring? You know what is really fun? Mentoring a brand new Christian. Amen. That is a blast. I love it. I love the questions you get. Like, uh, I understand that, that there were 12 disciples, but who was Acts? Or why did they name the book Job? You get some good stuff, you know? It's fun to mentor a new Christian. If your life is boring, perhaps that's what your cure is. Learn from Paul's and Timothy's example. That's the point I'm making. Learn from that. You're not supposed to go this alone. You're not supposed to go it alone. So either get into a group or get into a mentorship relationship. But don't be a loner. That's not what God has for you. All right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful letter. And though we've just scratched the surface, I pray that as we go from week to week, that you would unfold it before our eyes and you transform our hearts so that we would be godly. We would train ourselves to be godly and we would become pleasing in your sight, obedient Christians. And I just want to pray, Lord, for people who are here today and they are not been obedient. They have not been obedient in how they communicate, how they act, the things that they appreciate and love. Lord, I pray that you would bring some conviction today and bring them back, call them back, Lord, into the fold of godly living and pleasing you. Give us, Lord, the courage to make the hard decisions to move into a mentoring relationship that we know is what is best but is scary. Give us the courage, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.